The Great Improbability. This is part 10 of the audio drama. It has crossed my mind There's so little time That we lived in the sweet forever The Great Improbability An autobiographical mystery by the people of Earth David Sayer, author Dear Admitting Office, I don't know how to write a recommendation, but you got to read this. Amy and David are real smart. I mean, super smart. But I think more important, they got a dream. See, they came in here sick in their heads so they couldn't make no friends. Then they found each other. Now they got this idea, like folks who got no feelings can learn how to love and see beauty and stuff. And then they can connect better. And if they can, then everybody can. I ain't that smart, but I've seen a lot. The world needs better connecting. Amy and David got a way to do it. See, I love them. Now I can't help no more. Please give them a chance. They will make our world better. And Yale, too. Sincerely yours, Miss Audrey. The Dean of Admissions brought this strange letter to me. I don't know, Trevor. This thing haunts me. I threw it out. The next morning, I fished through my trash to retrieve it. It comes from a school in Massachusetts for young folks with behavioral problems and learning disabilities. A week ago, I got the formal applications from the two students she's apparently referring to. They have perfect grades, but no other qualifications, except a long-winded essay on the limits of artificial intelligence. To tell the truth, I assumed it was plagiarized. Maybe the whole thing's a fake. We've both seen crazier schemes to get into this place. Yeah, probably. Well, let me know if you think I should see them. The dean got up to leave. I was still looking at the strange recommendation. Charlie, maybe it's real. God knows, we don't see a lot of dreams come in here. I spend half my seminars trying to stimulate some. These two seem to be linked somehow. Maybe we can get two for one. I sighed and looked up. Send them to me. I'll do a quick interview and let you know if I think we should consider either one. Charlie smiled. He knew I was a sucker for this kind of appeal. Professor Trevor Benson was the first person Amy and I met on campus, and probably our most important teacher at Yale. Actually, he wasn't on the science faculty, but he was our advisor, and we sure needed one. He got us into the best track right away. 
We needed only a few semesters of additional undergraduate courses, and when we pushed through them, he helped us write grant applications and get into our Ph.D. programs and later our postdoc positions. Amy specialized in information theory, and I focused on thermodynamics and energy systems. These sciences are actually more closely linked than you may realize through their dependence on entropy. But I won't bore you with that. Not yet, anyway. Even more important, Professor Benson arranged our marriage in the chapel. Don't think we got religion or romance or something at Yale. It just seemed practical. Since we intended to be together most of the time, we figured we'd be treated better as spouses. Besides, there are tax and legal and other advantages to a married couple. And we were into exploring traditions and humanist perspectives along with our sciences, thinking that might help our search for how people relate. Anyway, we got the chaplain to do the legal stuff, and we took new names that everybody thought were cool. I became David Amy, and she became Amy David. Well, that's about it for the Yale years. So, I became faculty advisor to Amy and David. Their strange appearance and their work are familiar now, but at the time, they were a curiosity, even at Yale. Everything about them seemed somehow synthetic in the early years. Amy was, of course, confined to that vehicle they called the Chariot, with its speech synthesizer and large computer and various radio links they were always tinkering with. She could move the thing quite gracefully, which added emphasis to David's ungainly stride. I suppose at the start of their relationship, he had pushed her wheelchair, and he always seemed to be trying to guide her chariot, even when she was setting their direction. Their eye contact was another memorable difference. Amy always stared directly at her conversant, while David's gaze was evasive. Anyway... Charlie and I were always glad, and a bit self-congratulatory, that we had pushed through their acceptance. I expect they will join the ranks of the school's most illustrious alumni someday. That is, if they can get a hearing for their peculiar ideas. In the meantime, I hope they will mature emotionally and learn to relate to others. I like to think I gave them a head start in that direction. After, they decided I might actually have some ideas. Professor Benson, we have to admit we're a lot more confident in here than we expect to be on the outside. We don't want to work for any of the big companies or government agencies that are in here doing interviews. We could do postdoc work on campus or at Princeton, but that just seems to be putting off what we really want to do. And what is that? We want to explain the meaning of life. Yeah, well, Amy means... We want to do some serious research on what intelligent life really is. Like, how could you detect it somewhere else, and what are its capabilities? And are we still evolving? Yes, and are things like love and beauty real and essential to life? And do we need feelings, and how can we develop them? That seems a long way from your studies here. No, no it isn't. That's the point. We have found that what people call intelligence is really the farthest from equilibrium condition in the universe. It's the lowest entropy state, or at least the capability of reducing entropy continuously. Entropy measures both information content and disorder. We know a lot about both. 
David and Amy were agitated and talking too fast for me to keep up. Why is this entropy so important to you? Because we don't relate well. That's what keeps us from being real persons. I still don't get it. What does entropy have to do with relation? I thought to myself, I bet I'll be sorry I asked that. Sure enough, they handed me a one-paragraph essay they had written for a psych seminar. I still have it. High-entropy things lack relation. They don't fit. They don't stick together or cooperate or move in a common direction. All their parts move at random, each following its own unpredictable course. They make a great noise but no signal, a great heat but no work. They head only downhill, and with an almost infinite number of ways to get there, no one route related to the others. Well, I sort of get it, I thought. And it does seem to lend a humanist perspective to their technical studies. It prompted me to propose what turned out to be a good idea. Why don't you try a grant application to some foundations? Or NIH? Or... Wait a minute. Maybe the National Science Foundation. I remembered a classmate from Harvard who had gone on to NSF and had been bragging recently about his work on the characteristics of intelligence. I was betting that David and Amy would challenge his comfort on that topic. Maybe he would help get a grant approved. And, of course, it wouldn't hurt the university to be associated with some cutting-edge work that would also make a contribution to our overhead. From this modest start, and after a long, muddling period, Amy and David would write a significant piece of human history. So the NSF accepted our grant application to apply heuristic programming to analyze and synthesize effective behavior. Wow. Or as Miss Audrey said when we called her, Holy shit! Well, you might say, do they know about Amy? Or what could someone once diagnosed as borderline autistic know about affective behavior? I can barely detect it. But look, we had this great idea. We considered the study an investigation into post-Darwinian evolution. Is survival of the fittest still a valid principle? We asked rhetorically. If so, who are the fittest? It's no longer strength in battle, or efficient metabolism, or rapid procreation that advances the human species. Could it be our intellect? Dexterity? Adaptation? Are we advancing at all? Perhaps the fittest are those who maximize what Martin Buber a century ago called relation. Those who learn to cooperate, to organize, to communicate efficiently, to heal. Those creatures that relate most effectively to each other. Don't you think that's worth spending taxpayer money to find out? Professor Benson told us to put in some clever quotes. We used the great Spanish philosopher, Unamuno. Man is said to be a reasoning animal. I do not know why he has not been defined as an affective or feeling animal. Perhaps that which differentiates him from other animals is feeling rather than reason. More often I have seen a cat reason than laugh or weep. Perhaps it weeps or laughs inwardly. But then perhaps, also inwardly, the crab resolves equations of the second degree. Cool, right? But if it is feeling that distinguishes us, 
Does that provide a selective advantage in evolution? Maybe so. If feelings promote the efficiency of constructive collaboration, and does this kind of evolution continue, even today? And then, can a rational basis of feeling, of affective behavior, be found? I mean, suppose that one were to start out handicapped in that capacity, as Amy and I are. Could it be learned? We believed the answers to these questions to be yes, and proposed to demonstrate it. Are you still listening? Okay. Imagine you had to program an advanced computer to feel, as well as to think. Or imagine you had to explain to an extraterrestrial visitor the concept of love or beauty. Is there an understandable, communicable basis for these things? For joy? For anger, sadness, fear? In fact, could one reach universal agreement on what qualifies as life itself? Not so obvious, right? We convince the NSF that these questions are more than philosophical. If we are to make progress beyond present human limits, we would have to do better than the current algorithms of artificial intelligence. Philosophers and scientists have not been able to agree or to make much progress on these questions over recent centuries, and we made the bold claim that we could. We would give evolution a push. We could be better than we are. We proposed a design that might accelerate human adaptation to the demands of the modern environment with which we must contend. We gave the NSF reviewers a brief teaser showing that we had a head start on an adaptive human computer link. Our method would be to use this link to participate in situations in what we called the places of great striving. Prisons, hospitals, battlegrounds, and asylums, of course but also laboratories and universities, and the high places of government and industry. Here, the stresses of being human are starkly experienced. Here, we would try to get inside the heads of the strivers. We had the tools, and the NSF agreed to grant us the budget for expenses and reporting. Then we got all this publicity, and letters of introduction from the Yale faculty and so forth. These plus the NSF sponsorship should open all the doors we need opened. Once through them, Amy and I think we can obtain the highly personal testimony that will support our research. Thus the adventure began, and our becoming. The tall, stooped speaker will have won an award for applying technology to social problems after escaping from hell. But he will prefer to talk about the capabilities needed by engineers to do their work. Finally, I think you might propose the capacity to organize that information to bring about what we call order. This is the capacity to recognize patterns to make energy into work, to reduce entropy locally. If we couldn't recognize order and choose it, we could not arrange and structure and build, nor could we either learn or teach. Ultimately, we could not heal each other or advance our civilization, okay? Now, 
I propose that these four, the pursuit of truth, the maintenance of freedom, the exchange of information, the bringing of order, I propose to you these as the rational core of our devotion. And look, they are also what we in the sciences would recognize as rational, intelligent life. Though the journey seems long, it doesn't take long to realize the song always has an ending here in the sweet forever. Appearing in Part 10 of The Great Improbability were Dennis Johnson, Gene McDaniels, Jason M., Robert Beale, Dylan Michael Collins, and Bridget Abreu. Produced by Dennis Collins Johnson.